0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: Hardly be expected that it would accept peace on the conditions offered by the English the truce which had existed between england and france since the battle of poitiers came to an end on the first may thirteen fifty nine the king of england and the prince of wales had a meeting with king john at westminster and john showed himself willing to sign any treaty that was proposed to him the english demanded all the country from calais to the pyrenees even normandy and anjou should be given up to them and that four millions of golden florins should be paid as King John's ransom. When this treaty was brought to France, the dauphin assembled the king of Navarre and others in a council of state and laid it before them. It was unanimously rejected. We would rather endure, they answered, the great distress we are in at present than suffer the kingdom of France to be diminished. King John must remain longer in England when edward the third heard their answer he said that before the winter was over he would enter france with a powerful army and remain there until there was an end of the war by an honourable and satisfactory peace end of section eleven england all this time was in a condition of peaceful prosperity the king and his court were amusing themselves with tournaments and hunting-parties. Edward III determined to open the war again, and began his preparations for leading a mighty army into France. Swarms of adventurers of all nations gathered at Calais, and offered him their services. The Duke of Lancaster was also to come to Calais and bring with him the English troops which had been fighting for the cause of the de Montfort in Brittany, on the 28th of October, 1359, Edward sailed from Sandwich with an army such as had not been raised in England for more than a hundred years. Froissart tells us that there was not a knight or a squire from the age of twenty to sixty who did not go. It is interesting to note that amongst those who took part in this expedition was Geoffrey Chaucer, then only a young man, but destined to become famous as the first great name in our list of English poets the king took with him the black prince and three of his other sons lionel john and edmund on landing at calais edward proceeded to arrange his battalions that he might set off at once to meet the duke of lancaster first marched the king's battalion and after it an immense baggage train which froissart tells us was two leagues in length it consisted of more than five thousand carriages drawn by horses and carrying provisions for the army they were well provided with all kinds of things which no english army had ever taken with it before such as mills to grind their corn and ovens to bake their bread after the king's battalion came the battalion of the prince of wales who was accompanied by his brothers the men-at-arms were all so richly dressed and rode such fine horses that says Foissart, it was a pleasure to look at them both they and the archers marched in close order that they might be ready to engage at any moment, should it be necessary. With the army went five hundred pioneers, with spades and pickaxes, to level the roads and cut down trees and hedges, so that the carriages might pass easily. The Duke of Lancaster's battalion joined them soon after leaving Calais, and the three battalions proceeded on their march into the heart of France. They did not advance very quickly, as they had to let all the wagons keep pace with them. They found no provisions on their way, as everything had been carried off to supply the garrisons. Moreover, the country had been so pillaged and destroyed that the ground had not been cultivated for three years. They had hoped to refresh themselves in the vineyards and lay in stores of the new wine, but the season was so rainy that the grapes were worth nothing day and night the rain fell in torrents but in spite of all difficulties and though winter was coming on they pressed on to reims avoiding all the other strong towns for it was edward's ambition to be crowned at reims in the cathedral where the kings of france were always crowned reims was a strong town and was well defended by its archbishop edward wished to reduce it by a long siege not to storm it for he was careful of his men the english army therefore quartered itself in different villages round the town the king the black prince and the duke of lancaster each kept their court in different places and had great households many of the counts and barons were not so comfortable as the rainy weather still continued and their horses were badly housed and ill-fed there was a great scarcity of corn of all kinds one of the english knights succeeded in taking a little town near rheims in which he found three thousand butts of wine great part of which he sent to the king of england and his sons to their great joy the knights often wearied of the siege and went away on little expeditions by themselves and there were many brave passages of arms between them and the french for seven weeks edward the third remained before rheims and then began to tire of the siege it was hopeless to try and take the city by assault for it was well defended many of the horses had perished owing to the scarcity of fodder so at last he determined to break up his camp he marched south from rheims to Chalons and tonnerre at tonnerre he found very good wines and in order to enjoy them stayed there five days he then went on further south still to flavigny where he spent the whole of lent because there was a good store of provisions there. His light troops scoured the country and constantly brought in fresh provisions. The men-at-arms amused themselves in many different ways. They had brought with them from England a number of boats made, says Foissard, surprisingly well of boiled leather. These would hold three men, who could then go fishing in little rivers and lakes. They were able to catch a great deal of fish which was very useful as during lent according to the rules of the church no meat might be eaten the king had with him thirty falconers on horseback with their hawks sixty couple of strong hounds and as many greyhounds and amused himself every day with hunting and hawking many of his lords also had their hawks and hounds flavigny was in the duke of burgundy's dominions he was a vassal of the king of france but in reality ruled like an independent prince. He therefore sent ambassadors and made a treaty with Edward, so that his country might not be destroyed. When the treaty was signed, the English army broke up their camp and went on toward Paris by forced marches. Whilst Edward was in Burgundy, England had been alarmed by the appearance of a French fleet, which ravaged the English coast and even took and pillaged Winchelsea with great difficulty the english succeeded in raising a small fleet before which the french retired and the english revenged themselves for the french outrages by ravaging the coast of france when news of this french invasion reached edward it must doubtless have made him more anxious than ever to force a peace from the french so that he might not lose any of the advantages which he had already won he established himself at a short distance from paris and sent heralds to the dauphin who was in the city offering him battle but the dauphin would not venture outside the walls of paris this greatly enraged the king and he allowed sir walter Manny and other knights to assault the barriers of paris but they could not do much as the city was well defended the army was exhausted by the sufferings endured on account of the rainy winter and the scarcity of provisions edward determined therefore to take them along the loire to brittany to recruit and refresh themselves and then, after the vintage, which promised to be a very good one, to bring them again to lay siege to Paris. Meanwhile, Pope Innocent VI had been doing his utmost to persuade the Dauphin to make peace, who at last consented to send commissioners after the King of England to try and arrange terms. It was hard to persuade Edward to give up his ambition to be King of France, but at last he listened to the arguments of his cousin, the Duke of Lancaster, whom he much loved and trusted, and who showed him how doubtful it was that he could hope to succeed in his ambitious desires whilst the war might easily last out his lifetime. Froissart tells us that a sudden storm of hail and thunder so frightened the English army that they thought the world was come to an end. Edward, looking upon it as a judgment from God, vowed to the Virgin to accept terms of peace. At last, at the little village of Bretigny near Chartres, a treaty was signed on May 8, 1360. This peace, known as the Peace of Bretigny, is most important in history. It serves as a sort of landmark in the midst of the wars and struggles of the Middle Ages. In this treaty, Edward promised to give up forever his claim to the throne of France and to all the dominions of the Angevin kings north of the Loire, Anjou, Maine. Turenne and Normandy; he retained only Calais. On the other hand, the kings of France were to give up for ever all rights of exacting homage for the English provinces of Guienne and Gascony. Brittany was not included in the treaty, and England and France were both at liberty to assist either of the competitors for the duchy. King John was to be ransomed for three million golden crowns, equal to about thirty million of our money a part of which was to be paid at once and hostages given for the remainder when the treaty was signed edward and his son immediately hastened to england they then accompanied king john to calais that the final conference with the dauphin might be held after many more discussions the peace was ratified when all was arranged and the hostages had arrived at calais who were to go to england till john's ransom was all paid edward gave a magnificent supper to king john in the castle the king's sons and all the greatest barons of england waited bareheaded on the two kings after the supper edward and john took leave of one another in the most affectionate manner the black prince accompanied john to boulogne they went on foot as the french king wished to make a pilgrimage to our lady of boulogne there they met the dauphin and all went together to the church and made their offerings and afterwards to the abbey of boulogne where the black prince spent the day with the french and returned next day to calais the english were not long in returning to england taking with them all the french hostages amongst these hostages were two sons of king john the dukes of anjou and berry and his brother the duke of orleans edward commanded his officers and courtiers to treat them courteously and to be very careful to preserve peace with them as they were under his care they were allowed a great deal of liberty and might go where they liked in the city of london and its neighbourhood foissart tells us that they hunted and hawked according to their pleasure and rode out as they pleased to visit the ladies without any constraint for the king was right courteous and amiable the king of france was most joyously welcomed by his subjects on his return When he reached Paris, all the clergy came out to meet him and conducted him to the palace, where he and his nobles partook of a magnificent dinner. So overjoyed were both people and nobles to see him, that they all made him rich gifts and entertained him at sumptuous feasts. There was a good deal of difficulty in carrying out the articles of the Treaty of Bretigny. Many of the French towns and strongholds which had to be given over to the English objected very strongly and the king of france had to use much persuasion before they would consent to yield the town of la rochelle only yielded with difficulty the principal inhabitants of the town saying we will honour and obey the english but our hearts shall never change on the other hand there were many small towns and fortresses in france which were held by english and gascon nobles these had to be given up to the king of france and the soldiers who were turned out thought they could not better employ themselves than by forming themselves into robber bands and pillaging the country more than ever was france overrun by the free companies the king of france was at last obliged to send an army against the largest of these companies called the great company but they defeated his army and proceeded to threaten the pope in avignon who was obliged to hire soldiers to oppose them Edward had appointed Sir John Chandos as regent and lieutenant of his possessions in France, and in the name of the King of England, Chandos received the homage of the nobles of Poitou and the Duchy of Aquitaine. He made Niort his headquarters and kept a great establishment there. He was a brave and accomplished knight, amiable and sweet tempered, and was beloved and esteemed by the king and all who knew him. End of section 12. the christmas after the treaty of bretigny was spent by edward and his court with great splendour at woodstock when the holidays were over the king went to winchester where he had summoned his parliament to meet him on the twenty fourth of january thirteen sixty-one. he told them all the articles of the peace concluded between him and the king of france with which they expressed themselves entirely satisfied on the last day of january the archbishop of canterbury celebrated the mass of the holy trinity in the presence of the court and parliament, returning thanks for the peace. After the mass, torches were lighted and crosses held up over the Eucharist, the king and his sons standing up in the presence of the French hostages. Then all those lords who had not yet sworn to keep the peace took the oath and signed a solemn declaration that they would observe all the conditions. The Black Prince was now thirty-one years of age and still unmarried. Struck, it is said, by the beauty of his cousin Joan of Kent, he obtained the consent of his father to marry her. Joan was of the Blood Royal of England, being daughter of Edmund, Earl of Kent, son of Edward I. She had already been twice married and was now a widow and thirty-three years of age, somewhat older than the Black Prince her great beauty had won for her the name of the fair maid of kent and there is no reason to suppose that she had lost any of her charms at the time of her marriage to the black prince the marriage took place on the tenth october thirteen sixty one and in the following year on the fourteenth july edward the third solemnly invested the black prince with the principality of aquitaine and gascony giving him the title of duke of aquitaine the peace and prosperity of england was disturbed in thirteen sixty two by a second outbreak of the plague which lasted from august till may it was not so destructive as it had been the first time but it seems to have been more fatal amongst the higher ranks of society amongst others the king's cousin the duke of lancaster died of it he left behind him only two daughters the elder had been married to the earl of ainault and the younger, Blanche, had married, in 1359, Edward's third son, John of Gaunt. Blanche, on the death of her elder sister, became heiress of all her father's great wealth, and it is in her right that John of Gaunt became Duke of Lancaster. This marriage of John of Gaunt has a special interest to us, as it is said to have inspired one of Chaucer's earliest poems, The Assembly of Fowls or the parliament of birds the origin of the connection between chaucer and john of gaunt is not known but it seems to have begun early in the poet's life geoffrey chaucer was the son of a london vintner and seems most probably to have been born in thirteen forty the facts of his early life are involved in obscurity and we do not know whether his education was due to the wealth and enlightened views of his father or to his having been early taken under royal patronage john of gaunt was never a popular man in english history but he seems to have had the capacity of attracting to him the great literary characters of his age for we know that chaucer and wycliffe were intimately connected with him poetry had at that time become very fashionable and was cultivated more especially in france by men of the highest rank chaucer therefore though of humble birth might hope to raise himself by his genius to be the friend even of a royal prince if the date assigned to the assembly of fowls thirteen fifty eight be a true one it must rank as one of his earliest poems he was then only eighteen years of age but there are no signs of an unripe intellect about the poem it is full of the freshness and life which always remained such a distinguishing characteristic of chaucer the poet has fallen asleep over his book, and he dreams that he is led into a beautiful park walled with green stone, with a few of his light, delicate touches. he brings before us the whole scene: the trees clad with leaves that a shall last, the garden full of blossomed boas. It is the orderly, sweet, fresh landscape that the mediaeval poet loved at last he came to the spot where all the birds were gathered together before the noble goddess nature that since it was saint valentine's day each might choose his mate perched on nature's hand was a beautiful female eagle by whom the poet is supposed to have signified the lady blanche of lancaster three eagles disputed vehemently as to which of them shall be her mate and nature refers the question to the assembly of birds each kind of bird chooses a representative to speak for them and in the speeches of the different birds there is ample scope for chaucer's playful humour and irony characteristic of the spirit of chivalry is the great deference paid by the suitors to the lady herself she is the sovereign lady whom the royal eagle beseeches to be his through her mercy no constraint is to be put on her choice and nature as judge decides that she shall have him on whom her heart is set. She bashfully asks for a year's respite in which to make her choice. This charming little poem may almost be taken as a type of the excellencies of Chaucer. It shows us his love of nature, his vivacity, his humor. Like all that he has written, it reflects faithfully the spirit of his age and breathes the very atmosphere of chivalry chaucer was no doubt strongly influenced by the french trouvères, though first amongst the great english poets he was an outcome of the poetic movement which had been going on for two centuries in the south of france and in italy he was the english representative of the great burst of mediaeval poetry but came late in its development and originated no great movement in england he had some few successors and imitators but after his death there is no great name in English literature till the revival of letters under the Tudors. It is not difficult to see how French influences were brought to bear upon Chaucer. In those days there was constant intercourse between France and England. Chaucer himself went to France, as we have seen, with the royal army in 1359, and remained there a year till he was ransomed by Edward III. He also later on in his life visited Italy, and was intimately acquainted with the writings of Boccaccio and Petrarch, from whom he borrowed largely. But it was from the French trouvere that he received his great impulse. He belonged to their school and adopted their form and imagery. One of his first works was a translation of the Romance of the Rose, yet he was no imitator. He was inspired by the spirit of the trouvere but everything he did is stamped with his own strong individuality and has a decidedly english character his greatest work the canterbury tales is most distinctively english he wrote another poem on the occasion of the death of the duchess blanche in thirteen sixty nine called the book of the duchess in which he expresses the grief of the duke of lancaster the setting of this poem is again quite in the character of the trouvère he employs his favourite machinery of a dream which opens with the singing of birds on a may morning as they sat among upon Michambro chambra upon the teals over a la buta, and song an evrich in his wiese the most a solemn servise be not that ever man y ad at erd he gives us an interesting picture of a mediaeval room by describing that in which he lay It was painted all over with frescoes illustrating the romance of the rose, and the windows were filled with beautiful painted glass, on which was wrought the history of the siege of Troy. As he lies in bed, he hears the sound of a horn and jumps up that he may follow the hunt. Then, as he wanders through the wood, he comes upon a knight sitting mourning at the foot of an oak tree. This, of course, is John of Gaunt, who with bitter tears deplores the death of his lady chaucer continued all his life to find a powerful friend in john of gaunt to his influence he doubtless owed various offices which he held at different times he was several times sent abroad in secret affairs of state and at last obtained a permanent office in london with a salary and besides had a pension granted to him his connection with john of gaunt was strengthened by the fact that his wife's sister catherine swinford who had been in the service of the duchess blanche first became the duke's mistress and afterwards his third wife the advantage of such a patron to the poet must have been great as it relieved him from all anxiety about money and permitted him to devote most of his energy to his art we cannot overestimate what chaucer did for the english language before his time french was the common language of the court the schools the law courts and all the higher classes of society the dialects spoken in different parts of england differed widely from one another and it remained a question which of these dialects should triumph and form the cultivated english language it was chaucer who decided this question it was his language that was to become the standard of english this was due to the force of his genius which made men feel the beauty the power and the capacities of the language which he used so that insensibly it became the language of all cultivated men, and as the English language developed it triumphed over the French. One of the acts which commemorated Edward III's jubilee is an edict in which he said that as the French tongue was much unknown in the country, all pleas should be henceforth in English. On the 14th November, 1362, Edward Third celebrated his jubilee that is his fiftieth birthday in honour of the day he proclaimed a general pardon and set all prisoners at liberty and recalled all exiles to commemorate it still further he conferred various dignities upon his sons lionel was made duke of clarence john of gaunt was solemnly raised to the dignity of duke of lancaster the king in full parliament girt him with a sword and set upon his head a cap of fur and a circlet of gold and pearls edmund the fourth son was made earl of cambridge this was the climax of edward's prosperity on his fiftieth birthday he might look back upon his life and say that fortune had indeed favoured him but from henceforth things did not go so well misfortunes and troubles marked the last years of his life and in the end he was destined to lose almost all that he had won. It is not difficult to see how this came about. Edward Third was a brave and accomplished knight, a man full of energy and interests, anxious to protect commerce and manufacture, to increase the wealth of his people, and to win glory for himself by his wars. But he had no great purpose in his life. He collected mighty armies at an enormous expense, and led them into the enemy's country without any definite scheme of what he meant to do his own bravery and that of his soldiers enabled him to win great victories but not content with grasping firmly what he had once got he indulged in an ambitious dream of one day winning the crown of france even when the peace of bretigny had secured to him the great duchy of aquitaine neither he nor the black prince had sufficient political wisdom to take such steps as would have preserved it for the English crown. They had won it, but they could not keep it. Over the joy of Edward's jubilee there hung no shadow of distrust for the future. The next year the black prince was to go and take up his abode in his new duchy of Aquitaine, and the months before his departure were filled up with hunting parties in the royal forests, which were conducted with the greatest possible magnificence, and with no sparing of expense the king and queen with their children spent christmas at the black prince's manor of berkhamstead near london there were many jousts and tournaments and all the usual christmas games and festivities the general extravagance and love of dress must have increased to an alarming extent for the next year is marked by a sumptuary statute which aimed at diminishing extravagance and high prices it decreed that each merchant was to deal only with one sort of merchandise which he must choose before the feast of Candlemas. Handcraftsmen also were to practice only one mystery, as the trades were then called, exceptions only being allowed in the case of women workers. The goldsmiths were to make their work sterling, and each master goldsmith was to have his own mark. His work must be assayed by the royal surveyors, who were to put the king's mark on it, and then the goldsmith was to have put his own mark no goldsmith might make both gold and silver plate the prices at which he was to sell his work were fixed the statute went on to regulate matters of mere personal expenditure it ordained that the poor were to eat and drink in the manner that pertaineth to them and not excessively that they were not to eat fish or meat more than once a day seeing that various people wore clothing above their estate in degree it ordained that the handicraftsmen and yeomen were not to wear cloth above a certain price and no silk and embroidery ribbons or gold and silver ornaments the ploughmen and all agricultural labourers were only to wear tunics of blanket or russet with girdles of linen above all no one except persons of the highest rank was to wear fur or pearls the statute was not prompted by any feeling of the evils of luxury among the ruling classes About the time of its promulgation, Archbishop Simon Islip issued a remonstrance against the abuses, the foppery, and extravagance of the court. The upper classes had no intention of reforming their own extravagance, but they wished to have the monopoly of all luxuries, and they fancied that the more extensive use of fine clothes and various kinds of victuals greatly increased their price these sumptuary laws show with what bitter jealousy the nobility regarded the growing wealth and prosperity of the merchant classes the burghers of london were indeed becoming very rich and powerful about this time henry picard a vintner the lord mayor of london sumptuously feasted edward III, the black prince david bruce king of scotland the king of cyprus who had come to ask edward's help against the turks and many nobles afterwards he kept open house to any who liked to play at dice or hazard with him whilst his wife the lady margaret received the ladies in her upper room the king of cyprus engaged in play with picard and won fifty marks but picard was a good player and soon won back more than he had lost at which the king was much vexed he tried to hide his irritation but picard saw it and said to him my lord king be not aggrieved i covet not your gold but your play for i have not bid you hither that i might grieve you but that amongst other things i might try your play then he gave him his money back again and distributed more among his servants he gave also many rich gifts to edward the third his son and the knights who had dined with them at a later period the city bought a large quantity of plate to present to the black prince at a cost of six hundred and eighty three pounds ten shillings fourpence which equals about ten thousand two hundred and fifty two pounds of our money amongst other articles all of silver were ten dozen porringers five dozen salt cellars and twenty chargers there were also three gilded basins six gilded pots a gilded cup in the form of an acorn and a pair of ivory bottles the total number of articles was two hundred and seventy nine not only among the people at large but still more at the english court itself had extravagance in dress and manner of living increased at an enormous rate old english simplicity was more than ever forgotten and large sums of money were wasted on every side merely on display in matters of food and clothing the remonstrance of archbishop islip attracted some attention but produced as little effect on the fashions of the day as did the sumptuary laws just passed by parliament display was characteristic of Edward, and where the king set the example, it was only likely that the people would follow. The mass of the clergy were worse than the people. They who ought to have set an example of greater sobriety and simplicity were especially renowned for their love of good eating and fine clothes. Whilst they followed the chase and gave themselves up to pleasure of every kind, they left their people wandering as flocks without shepherds a noticeable event occurred in the year thirteen sixty two some of the french hostages had begun to be weary of their confinement and asked edward's permission to go to calais and make some excursions into the surrounding country promising never to be absent for more than four days at a time the king believing that he might trust their promise granted their request but the duke of anjou basely took advantage of this permission to break his parole and went off to paris his father King John was so deeply grieved at this breach of faith that he determined to go back himself to England as a prisoner in the place of his son who had escaped. The English received him with great respect and courtesy, and he took up his abode again at the Savoy Palace. Edward did all he could to make his captivity pleasant, but he was seized with a mortal illness, and died three months after his return to England. End of section thirteen when the black prince had been created duke of aquitaine the barons and knights of that country were very anxious that he should come and live amongst them and they often entreated the king that he would allow him to do so the english parliament also seeing the large sums of money which were necessary to keep up the magnificent establishments of the king and his sons in england represented to edward that if the black prince were to set up his court in aquitaine this rich and fertile country would supply all his expenses. The black prince himself was nothing loath to go there and set to work to make the necessary preparations for his journey. His wife was to accompany him, as well as many English barons and knights, and he intended to establish his court in Aquitaine with all the magnificence of an independent prince. Aquitaine had been now for more than two hundred years in the hands of the English, and some of the English kings had given a good deal of attention to means for promoting the prosperity of the country. Edward I had begun a course of policy which, if it had been continued, might have done much to strengthen the ties which bound Aquitaine to England. He had founded many new towns which he endowed with special privileges so as to induce inhabitants to flock to them. As these towns owned no intermediate lord, and owed all their privileges to the english crown the inhabitants naturally regarded the english rule with favour edward i s towns were all built on a regular plan and to this day are sometimes called english towns when founded they were called bastides. they had two parallel streets at a short distance from one another connected by many short narrow lanes in the middle of the town was the market-place in one corner of which stood the church here was the market-hall with a great weighing machine to weigh the merchandise here also was the well or fountain of the town the houses round the market-place as was the custom in southern climates were built in arcades which protected the merchants from the hot rays of the sun whilst conducting their business in fifty years fifty of these towns had been founded Many of them were named after the English officers who superintended their foundation. Charters were given them, and as they were free towns and had no overlord, they were regarded with great jealousy by the other towns. Libourne was the most important and flourishing of these Bastides, and excited the jealousy of Bordeaux itself. Edward III renewed its charters and further allowed its inhabitants to have free trade with England, releasing them from all custom duties at Bordeaux. At the death of Edward I, the English ceased to found Bastides, but they carried on a policy likely to be equally successful in winning the affections of the people. They annexed to the crown a large number of towns, freeing them from their overlords and granting them charters. This freedom from overlords was what all the towns of the Middle Ages were struggling to get. As the towns had grown up on land belonging to some baron, they owed him, like other inferior vassals, certain dues and money payments. They had no corporate and independent existence until they could obtain a charter of liberties from their overlord. The struggle of towns to obtain charters was going on in all countries during the course of the Middle Ages. As a rule, the monarchs favoured the towns, hoping thereby to get their support and aid in their struggles against the nobles. Edward III committed a mistake by departing from the policy of his predecessors and giving back many of the towns in Aquitaine to the chief Gascon lords who belonged to the English party. He was anxious by this means to win the aid of the nobles in his wars against France, but he forgot that if he wished to keep any permanent hold on the Duchy of Aquitaine, he must secure the affections of the people. The nobles were ready to fight for anyone who would give them wealth and sufficient opportunities for plunder, and France might easily outbid Edward. The people could only be won by a wise and liberal government. The towns could not hope for much from Edward, They saw him disregard their dearest wishes and interests, and give them back into the hands of their overlords. Aquitaine must have represented a flourishing appearance when the Black Prince arrived to take up his abode there. The rich and fertile country was covered with vineyards, and the bastides of Edward I, with their regular streets and fine marketplaces, had increased into flourishing towns. The wine trade with England was carried on very vigorously though here as in many other cases edward iii's over busy legislation was a hindrance rather than a benefit at one time he would allow no english merchants to go to gascony to buy wine but enacted that all the wine must be brought to england by gascon merchants when complaints were raised that large quantities of wine lay unsold in aquitaine for want of english buyers he revoked his prohibition but forbade the english merchants to carry the wine to any other country but england the black prince drew most of his revenue from the duties on wine so that it was of no small importance to him that the trade should flourish the black prince with his wife the princess joan and all his followers arrived at la rochelle in the beginning of the year 1363. here they were met by sir john Chandos who had come from niort to receive them he was followed by a large number of knights and squires who all greeted the prince with great joy they spent four days at rochelle in feastings and merriment and then went to poitiers where the prince received the homage of all the knights of poitou and saint-ange then he rode on to bordeaux and at every city on his way the knights and barons crowded to do him homage at bordeaux he and his wife established their court and received all the nobles of Aquitaine who came to pay them their respects. The court at Bordeaux was very brilliant. The prince had his father's love for feasting and fine clothes. Splendid merrymaking was the fashion of the age, and life at the black prince's court was a succession of revels and tournaments. He was a right noble host, and knew how to make all around him happy. Never, says Chandos the herald, since the birth of Christ, was there such good and honorable entertainment. Every day at his table he had more than eighty knights and four times as many squires. There they made jousts and revels, though all of them were subjects, yet were they all free, for he made them quite welcome. All who were about his person valued and loved him, for liberality was his staff and nobleness his director. Rightly might men say that search the whole world you could find no such prince it is no wonder that the gascon lords crowded to his court even the greatest of them all the counts of foix and armagnac came to visit him and they found that his court was as splendid as that of the king of france himself but we must not let our eyes be dazzled by all this magnificence to meet the expenses of his court the prince allowed the resources of his country to be drained though we may admire his noble hospitality and his princely courtesy to all comers we cannot altogether consider him a wise governor his mind seems only to have been occupied with the desire of making his court gay and pleasant instead of furthering the true interests of the people whom he was called upon to govern here again he may be taken as a type of his age we must not judge him by any standard of our own but by the standard of his days but the time was fast coming when it would be no longer possible for the rulers to forget the interests of the people when the people would at last succeed in making their voice heard and we shall see that at the end of his days the black prince did not refuse to hear them in thirteen sixty four there were great rejoicings at the birth of the prince's first son edward this little prince only lived to be seven years old but in thirteen sixty six the princess of wales bore another son called richard of bordeaux from his birthplace who ruled england as richard the the prince had not long set up his court at bordeaux before it seemed likely that peace would again be disturbed in his new dominions he had become the neighbour of spain and he was now called upon to interfere in spanish affairs up to this time spain had been of little importance in the general affairs of europe the energies of its people had been entirely spent in fighting one long crusade against their moorish conquerors the disunion between the small christian kingdoms long hindered their success against the moors but in twelve thirty the christian kingdoms of castile and leon were united under one ruler who being wise and powerful succeeded in winning back a large territory from the moslem the kings of portugal and aragon had also been successful in the west and east of the peninsula and at last nothing was left to the Mohammedan power in spain save the kingdom of granada it is easy to understand that whilst the kingdoms of spain were disunited and were engaged in this desperate struggle against the moors on which their very existence as a nation depended they had no time to interfere in the affairs of europe and except for the connection of the kings of Aragon with naples and sicily remained almost entirely outside european politics now however things were more settled in spain it was divided into five kingdoms the four christian kingdoms of castile aragon portugal and navarre and the mahometan kingdom of Granada. of these castile was the largest and had from its neighbourhood to the duchy of aquitaine been connected with the kings of england a daughter of henry the second of england had been married to the king of castile and edward i had married eleanor of castile who had known well how to gain the love and veneration of the english people as dukes of aquitaine it was the policy of the english kings to be on friendly terms with the kings of castile contending commercial interests had provoked discord from time to time as we have seen in speaking of the great sea-fight of winchelsea when edward III defeated the fleet of the maritime cities of biscay but this was in no way a quarrel between the two monarchs, and their friendly relations remained unchanged. So it happened that when the king of Castile, Don Pedro, was chased from his throne on account of his cruelty and tyranny, he turned naturally to the black prince, hoping to find in him a friend. He had been engaged to marry the prince's sister, the princess Joan, who had died of the plague at Bordeaux on her way to Spain. He called himself, therefore, the prince's brother-in-law, and considered that he had a claim to the prince's friendship. This Don Pedro was cruel and wicked, and by his tyranny had gained the hatred of his subjects. He had caused many of the proudest Spanish nobles to be secretly assassinated or executed for some pretended crime, and had even caused the death of his own wife, who was a French princess moreover he was regarded with abhorrence by the pope because he oppressed the church and lived on friendly terms with the moorish king of Granada. the pope therefore legitimized his bastard brother henry of trastamara a bold and valiant knight and encouraged him to wrest the kingdom from don pedro henry had special reasons to hate don pedro for one of the tyrant's first victims had been henry's mother leonora de guzman and it was only with difficulty that Henry himself and his brother Dontelo had escaped from Pedro's hands when he seized and executed the other members of their family. Neither was it difficult for Henry of Trastamara to find friends and supporters. Within his own dominions, Pedro had no friends, and in Charles V, who had been king of France since the death of his father, King John, Henry found a ready ally charles had various reasons for animosity to pedro he resented bitterly the murder of his kinswoman pedro's queen and saw in pedro an ally of england charles v was a wise and cautious man though he writhed under the burdensome obligations of the peace of bretigny he felt that he was not yet strong enough to reopen the war with england now he hoped that by aiding henry of trastamara he might strike a blow at the English power through their ally. Another important reason influenced him in this direction. France, as we have seen, was devastated by the free companies who were daily growing more powerful. The Pope at Avignon trembled before them, and it was equally important to both Charles V and the Pope to get rid of them. The two, therefore, joined together in hiring these companies to aid Henry. A treaty was concluded with the leaders of the companies, who were only too glad to engage on a military expedition in which they might hope for plenteous spoils. The French general Berton du Guesclin, whose fame had grown in the Breton War, was ransomed from captivity in Brittany that he might lead the free companies into Spain. Among the chiefs of the companies were many English and Gascon who went, in spite of Edward III's commands to the contrary. They marched over the Pyrenees into Spain and were met at Barcelona by Henry of Trastamara. There was no one found to take up the cause of the hated Pedro, who lost his throne without a battle and was obliged to fly with his two daughters to the fortress of Coruna and then to Bayonne. Thence he sent letters to the black prince, asking for his protection and aid. We may be surprised that the Black Prince listened for a moment to the entreaties of a man whose own crimes had lost him his throne, and whose wickedness drew on him universal abhorrence. But on the other hand, there were many things which recommended Pedro to his pity. He was the ally of England, and as a helpless fugitive, asked for aid. It was always the part of a true knight to succor the distressed. Again, There was a very strong feeling in favour of the legitimate sovereign, however great his crimes might be, and we cannot wonder at one ruler feeling sympathy for the misfortunes of another. The whole situation appealed strongly to the chivalric spirit of the prince. As a Christian knight, it was his duty, without any further thought of policy, to receive the fugitive hospitably and help him to win back his rightful inheritance some motives of policy also came in to influence him should an ally of france be placed on the throne of castile the black prince would be awkwardly placed in aquitaine with a declared enemy on one side and a probable enemy on the other possibly also he indulged in some hope that he might get substantial advantages from aiding pedro and that he might even be able to annex the maritime province of biscaya with all its thriving commercial cities whose spirit of enterprise led them to compete even with england herself. Still the policy which could lead the black prince to help Pedro was not very far-sighted. He might have seen that it would be impossible to establish firmly on the throne a ruler so much hated as was Pedro. In the end, the opposite party must triumph, and then he would find that he had embittered them against himself by helping their enemy. His wisest course, Would have been to do all in his power to secure the friendship of Henry of Trastamara. But this was opposed to all his feelings of what was due to an ally in distress. On receiving Don Pedro's letters, the black prince immediately sent for Sir John Chandos and Sir William Felton, his chief advisers, and said to them, smiling, My lords, here is great news from Spain. He then told them what he had heard and begged them to tell him frankly what they thought he ought to do they advised him to send a body of soldiers to bring don pedro safely to bayonne that they might learn his condition from his own mouth their advice pleased the prince and he sent sir william felton and a number of other knights to fetch don pedro they met him at bayonne and treating him with the utmost honour brought him to bordeaux the prince rode out of the town at the head of his knights to meet the fugitive king he greeted him respectfully and led him into the city with great courtesy an apartment had been prepared for him and in all things he was treated with the honour due to a reigning sovereign feasts and tournaments were held and everything was done which could make him forget his miserable condition don pedro on his side did all he could to attach the prince to his interests he had nothing but promises to give and of these he was most liberal promising rich gifts of money and lands to the prince and all his knights if they would help his cause There were not wanting wise men amongst the prince's counsellors to dissuade him from giving Don Pedro any help. They spoke to him of his secure and prosperous condition, telling him that he could want for nothing more, and that to try for more might endanger what he already possessed. They showed him the unworthiness of Pedro, how he was an enemy to religion, had oppressed his subjects, and was hated by all men. But all this made no impression on the prince, He could not shut his eyes to Don Pedro's distress, nor forget that he had come as a fugitive to ask his help. Before deciding upon anything, however, he assembled a great council of all the barons of his duchy to ask their advice. Many of the council were eager for the enterprise, as knights in those days longed for anything which might win them honour. They agreed, however, to send ambassadors to England and ask the advice of the king. When the answer came back, it appeared that Edward Third and his council were clearly of the same opinion as the prince. They advised him to aid Don Pedro with all the force at his command. The expedition was determined upon, but next arose the question of payment. The barons of Aquitaine were not willing to engage in this enterprise at their own expense. Don Pedro assured the prince that there need be no difficulty on this head once restored to the throne of Castile, he would have abundant treasure at his command and would pay all the expenses of the war the black prince put such trust in his word that he made himself answerable for the expenses of the war believing that pedro would not fail to pay him chandos and felton however advised the prince to melt down some of his plate of which he possessed an enormous quantity for immediate expenses swords and coats of mail were forged at bordeaux in preparation for the expedition letters were sent to the leaders of the english free companies who had accompanied henry of trastamara into spain bidding them return and aid in this expedition it was a matter of perfect indifference to these companies for whom they fought provided they had pay and booty enough though they had helped henry of trastamara to the throne They were quite willing to serve under the banner of the black prince and to pull down the king whom they had set up. It was necessary to obtain permission from the king of Navarre to pass through his dominions which lay between Aquitaine and Castile. Charles the Bad had pledged himself to Henry of Trastamara not to let any troops pass through his kingdom, but he was soon persuaded by the promise of a large sum of money to break his word. End. Of section fourteen the troops were to collect at docks for the expedition the black prince did his utmost to attach the free companies firmly to him by distributing amongst them the money which he had raised by melting down his plate his father learning his want of money had consented to send him the yearly payment made by the french in consideration of the sum of money still due for king john's ransom this money also was distributed amongst the companies on wednesday the feast of the epiphany when the black prince's preparations for leaving bordeaux were already complete he was rejoiced by the birth of his son richard he stayed to see his child baptized by the archbishop of bordeaux and on the following day his wife had to take leave of him She was filled with anxiety at his departure, as the expedition was considered to be full of danger, and the herald Chandos tells us that she bitterly lamented his departure, saying, Alas, what will happen to me if I shall lose the true flower of gentleness, the flower of magnanimity, him who in the world has no equal to be named for courage? I have no heart, no blood, no veins, but every member fails me when I think of his departure. But when the prince heard her lamentation, he comforted her, and said, Lady, cease your lament and be not dismayed, for God is able to do all things. Then he took his leave of her very tenderly and said lovingly, Lady, we shall meet again in such case that we shall have joy, both we and all our friends, for my heart tells me this, then they embraced with many tears and all the dames and damsels of the court wept also some weeping for their lovers some for their husbands the prince and his knights left bordeaux on january tenth and went to docks where the troops were collecting a few days afterwards the prince's brother john of gaunt duke of lancaster arrived at bordeaux with a body of troops which he had brought from england to aid in the expedition he was welcomed with great joy by the princess and her ladies. He would not stay, however, but pressed on to docks where his brother waited his coming. Froissart tells us that the two brothers were very happy in this meeting, for they had much affection for each other, and many proofs of affection passed between them and their men. Meanwhile, Henry of Trastamara had not been idle in preparing for his invasion all spain was on his side and the french king had sent troops to his assistance under his general bertrand du guesclin much romance has been woven around the history of this famous man who was to be the arm by which charles v should free himself from the english and who himself at one time the leader of a free company was to deliver france from the scourge of the companies it is difficult in the story of his life to separate truth from romance he was a breton and in those days it was said that none in france were good soldiers except the bretons and the gascons his origin is obscure and he is supposed to have been the son of a peasant even his most enthusiastic admirers allow him to have been a rough rude man extremely ugly of middle height with a dark complexion and green eyes long arms and large shoulders as a tactician he was far in advance of such simple soldiers as Edward III and the Black Prince. He had advanced beyond the ideas of chivalry, where the one aim was to fight bravely. He preferred to win by cunning, if possible, and did not care how often he broke his plighted word. He was one of a new race of soldiers who sought to win by tactics rather than by hard fighting, to avoid a battle rather than risk one still if it were necessary to fight he was always foremost and knew no fear he gave no quarter and thirsted for revenge against his foes the characteristic way in which he always plunged into the thickest of the battle without thinking of his own safety is shown by the fact that he was twice in his life taken prisoner when he had money he was prodigal of it but he was at all times eager for booty and pillage he had fought with success in brittany against de montfort and the english and was now ready to measure his strength with the most renowned captain of his age the black prince charles v king of france to whom history has given the name of the wise only complied with the conditions of the peace of bretigny that time might strengthen his resources while it weakened those of his enemies not a brave soldier himself In the Battle of Poitiers he was one of those who first